0: East.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose to simplify the administration of m and a deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M;A payments, and online stockholder solicitation Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Marshall Boyd, the co-president and chief investment officer at Interstate Equities Corporation a real estate investment firm that manages a billion dollars focusing exclusively on multifamily apartments on the California coast. IEC is one of those little known gems for those in the know. It's an endowment darling with just a dozen or so of the most elite LPs in the business. Our conversation covers Marshall's path to IEC and steps to turn a family boutique into an institutional business including the firm's investment thesis, deal sourcing, value-added operations, and exits. We then discuss attracting high-end institutional capital, IEC's team, the macroeconomic environment, a partnership mindset, and Marshall's lessons learned along the way. Before we get going... The Super Bowl is coming up and whether you're a fan of the Eagles or the Chiefs, of Andy Reid's former coaching style or his current one, of Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey, or of football or the commercials, you might experience a disorientation in how to spend your Sundays once the season is over. To help fill that void, we have a suggestion for you. Just hit play on the most recent Capital Allocators podcast and soak up that idle time productively with entertaining and useful investment insights. When you're finished, reach out to your fantasy football league and taunt them about not listening to the show. That is, unless you won your league, in which case you should suggest they listen to improve their chances of winning next year. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Marshall Boyd. Marshall, great to see you. Thanks for having me, Ted. Well, why don't we go back to your initial background and start of your career? I run
1: Interstate Equities. We're probably a little different than Starwood. or are fancy guests that come on this show. We have about a billion dollars under management. We're a real estate private equity firm. We buy and operate apartment buildings on the West Coast of California and in the state of Washington. That's the flavor of what we do. I grew up in Palo Alto. I was a public high school kid worked at a sneaker shop. My father was a professor of economics, so he didn't look kindly on being asked for cash. After high school, went to Middlebury College, wanted to do something really different and ran cross country and track there. So got to see the East Coast and then learned along the way what investment banking was. A lot of folks at Middlebury who grew up in New York, just a big industry there. And as I learned about it and thought, this sounds really interesting and something I could go into, it turns out in Palo Alto in 2002, there was a lot of tech investment banking going on. And so found one Middlebury grad who was in that office and worked my way into an internship and then being a financial analyst at the CSFB tech group for Frank Quattrone's group. Remains one of the more famous investment bankers. So it's really fun to watch him as a practitioner, but then also be there through the upswing and then the downswing of the tech environment. Honestly, that really colors the way I think about investing and maybe push me into real estate, which is a lower volatility world that I really appreciate. It fits my mentality. And I think my mentality was formed by being in a high-flying tech environment. After my investment banking time, moved on to TA Associates, the private equity firm, not the real estate firm, working for Jeff Chambers, who opened the Menlo Park office and working with people like Brian Conway. That was where I really felt this is where I belong. The idea of writing memos, really thinking about risk, having quiet moments, just really canvassing an area to, to make a call. That felt like this is my place. I really enjoyed my time at TA. Then I'm in my mid-20s thinking about business school. And my father passed away from cancer and we were very saddened. And I started looking at the business that he and my mother had founded, which was Interstate Equities in the 80s. They would buy rundown apartment buildings and fix them up, pool capital with their friends and make them some more money and go do it again. We didn't have a second home and I didn't have to pay for college, but wasn't a fancy upbringing. And I just thought this could be a private equity firm. These returns are on par or in some cases better than what TA was doing. And they're very good at what they do. So I thought, gosh, rather than business school, I'll join my sister who had gone there a year prior after Stanford Business School. And let's make a run at trying to make this into a fund business. That was the path. But you're in your late 20s, you've never done a day of real estate. You're really good at spreadsheets. We had a lot to learn.
0: What were the investment Lessons that you saw from banking experience and then also at TA when you started thinking about this niche real estate business?
1: I was young and ignorant, but what was interesting at TA is we would approach companies that we didn't even know that industry existed until we got a hold of that company and started studying it. And so that was where when I came into real estate, I thought, if we can underwrite a shampoo business at TA Associates or a mattress company. Why can't I and other smart people understand this real estate thing? That was really the thing that gave me the confidence to think this is attainable.
0: When you looked at what your parents had done, what did you see that created an investment thesis around what could become a business?
1: I looked at the replicability of the thesis and the lack of losses. And I think back to risk appetite, that really appealed to me. In private equity, there are complete losses. And in venture capital, there certainly are complete losses, as there were in the tech investment banking group. That stability of returns really appealed to me. I love the idea of that meat and potatoes investing. This idea, okay, we're going to hit singles and doubles. If you want triples, go do something else. But if you want to not lose your money, this is interesting. With a high process orientation, you can increase the chances of more doubles than singles and create a really nice risk adjusted profile. And that seemed to make sense, although, As we first started speaking to investors about it, they said, gosh, these are old buildings. What if the roofs give in? How many are you going to have to buy to put into a fund? Does that make sense? And so it was a real uphill battle back in 2007, 2008 timeframe to think about putting together a commingled fund of these vintage apartment buildings. Not everybody had even really considered it at the time. So there were a lot of short meetings.
0: So you mentioned, okay, your parents had bought a couple of rundown apartment buildings, got some of their friends' money. This had been going on for like 25 years. So what was Interstate Equities when your sister and you stepped into it? So I remember
1: showing up to work the first day, a week after my father's funeral. I didn't have a key to the front door. <laughs> I was sitting on a stoop outside the front door waiting for somebody to show up. We had five or six people in corporate. that really cared a lot about taking care of our high net worth investors. We had 10 small properties that we owned and we had no one on the investment team. There were a couple people in property management and a couple people in accounting and somebody that ran the office and then Julia and myself. So we're very fortunate to have a playbook to work on, but it was bare bones at that point. And it was unclear where it was going to go because James Boyd, my father, he was a force. And so the business without him was not going to exist any longer unless somebody came in and reinvented it. So there's a little bit of a turnaround
0: element to it. So what was that initial playbook off of those 10 properties that you stepped into?
1: Apartments, 85% of the asset class are owned by families. And families have other things going on in their life, especially if they inherited an apartment project. What we find is residents are living in these buildings and they're not being well cared for. There's a playbook for taking better care of people's living environment. And it turns out most Americans, 65%, depending on the town, they live in an apartment building, not a house. The playbook is just to create better places to live by renovating apartments, by upgrading habitability standards, by fixing broken things in their apartments, really operating a high end property management company. There's a huge differentiator there because institutionally REITs maybe own 8% of the product and funds might own another 10%. The balance are family owned. And so that was the thesis But we came in and we were learning the property management business. We were learning how to take care of residents. We were learning how to institute process and software. And then we looked up and said, well, we need to figure out how we're going to capitalize this business. We need to find people to get behind us. When you're 27 years old and doing steak dinners with wealthy individuals. They look at you and they're a bit quizzical about how you're going to outperform the industry. We made a fortunate call in 2007 and we sold most of our portfolio the year that we joined. We looked at the portfolio and said, well, if the thesis is to fix buildings and then sell them once you fix them, what are we waiting for? You know, it seems like time introduces risk. We made a sale, which was very opportunistic and fortunate. And then we were left with a small section of those buildings, a small bit of promote to feed the company. And we had to figure out how to reinvent the business going forward. And so at that point, we had nearly no capital under management. We'd had a small amount of promote, that which we were feeding salaries with. And then went out to figure out how to raise this fund that we had planned to work on. And so we floated the business for nearly two years. I had a line of credit against my house. We gave pay cuts to the existing team members. There was no pay for us. And we said, we're going to make this work. Our track record is intact. We can find people who will back us. And fortunately, in 2010, we arranged our first separate account, which was just in time. So it was a very fortunate break for us.
0: How did you go about that process? You're talking post-financial crisis. Even if the investment opportunities are good, it's notoriously the hardest time to raise capital. What were those two years like?
1: They were humbling. We would always say, at some point in your career, you have to burn the lifeboats. There's no going back. My friends at TA that had accepted my resignation and they had invested with us. So there was no going back. And I had this fancy private equity job and now I had no salary. So we needed to figure things out. And so we took out somewhat of the TA playbook and we started calling investors. We started getting in front of people. And we'd have little lights in the tunnel along the way when I'd be sitting and talking to a partner at Sequoia who was looking from a high net worth standpoint and investing with us. Gosh, if this partner thinks this is interesting, there must be other institutional folks globally who have interest in this that have a bigger capacity to invest. We were taking meetings. We must have done 150 meetings, cold calling, looking through the newspaper at names and who we should get in touch with. We had never done a fundraising meeting in our lives and at TA, I had no exposure to that. Maybe another way to put it is pressure creates diamonds. And there was pressure. We did not want to shut this business down on our watch. And so my sister and I, we were all in.
0: We're not the only ones who find themselves in that situation from time to time. I'd really love to hear what you learned from those cold calls and what was effective in getting in front of people and then in telling your message.
1: I think people appreciated the situation that we were in. We were very transparent about the things that had gone well for us and the things we were struggling with. I think folks understood that we had a worker's mentality. I mean, we were showing the operational execution on the ground rather than track record. We would lead with that. This is the value we create through our construction teams, through expense management versus the fortunate call of selling some deals in 2007. So I think folks appreciated that, that asset management first approach. Julia leads asset management and it's not normal for a co-CEO to run asset management in a real estate business. It's usually the investment folks and secondary is asset management. We believe that's wrong. So I think that was a differentiator for certain. I think our process orientation for being this scrappy tiny group, we were sitting around writing memos and passing them back and forth to each other and emulating some of the things that she'd seen at Accenture. I'd seen at TA and Some of the investors would smirk a little bit at the length of our memos, given what we were doing. But I think they thought they saw us a path to doing something bigger.
0: What was that big break that you mentioned when you were getting close to the end of the rope there?
1: I took a trip to New York and was literally asking friends if they knew people that I could talk to that might consider investing in a small real estate fund and had a friend introduce me to Someone who worked at Park Hill, which was at the time Blackstone's placement agent, walked in there and talked to them and showed them the record, showed them the process that we were working on, who we were talking to. And they said, you know what, we can make some introductions for you. I think they might have been a little bored at the moment because it was (laughs) late 2008. Michael Stark, who runs the group there, we're great friends still. And he said, I'll make a couple of introductions for you. And so he made a handful of introductions. I hit the road. I was pretty good at making PowerPoint presentations because that had been my job for several years. We were able to Find an endowment that said, We'll back you to be our West Coast exposure to apartments. And so we worked together with that endowment from 2010 till 2014 exclusively. And really, we looked at that as this is our entree into a fund opportunity. If we do well here, that's what will result. So let's treat it like a fund. So every deal we brought to that endowment, we wanted to make sure it would pass IC. We weren't throwing things at the wall. And we were beefing up our operations, we were investing ahead of our asset management fees into team. So we took that as a very serious opportunity and gosh, it couldn't happen at a better time coming in 2010 to make 16 investments in that period, grow our team and capability through that as a huge break for us.
0: I'd love to turn to the investment process and maybe you start at that top of the funnel. So how did you decide where to focus? This is real estate. So got to start with location, location, location.
1: It's as important what we don't do as what we do do. And so we're very careful about where we spend time. There's a lot of ways to do well in investing, but what we believe makes the most sense for us on a risk-adjusted basis is to invest in apartments in areas where the schools are fantastic, the jobs are outrageously good, homes are very, very expensive. So folks who want to be in that market in order to have their kids attend these schools and work at Silicon Valley companies or these powerhouse employers they will be renting for the time being. And those renters, a lot of times, maybe they're making a fantastic salary and they're sending their money back home or they're paying off business school or they're trying to make the next leap so that they can buy a home. There's a huge opportunity to provide housing for those individuals. This could be somebody, a fresh MBA, but it could also be somebody who's a groundskeeper at the local golf course and their significant other works at a restaurant. And they could also be living in our building, one unit over from that MBA grad. That's the opportunity to be in these infill markets. Maybe another way to frame it is where we're not. So we're not in the Inland Empire. We are not in Sacramento. We're not investing in areas where you can build a ton of new product. And we like these markets where nothing new gets built. And the only way to provide better housing for normal folks making a normal wage is to improve the existing stock. And so absent of the a new supply, we have a huge advantage because we just have less variables. i love to have less variables. We just have to really focus on those markets. And that gives us an opportunity to create all the value, not from macro calls on which town is going to be better in the future. It's about where can we create a living environment where people will pay us more to live there.
0: So when you run through that set of criteria, where did that leave you in terms of cities where you've bought properties?
1: Greater Silicon Valley, up and down the peninsula, we do not love strict rent control because it's just challenging. And honestly, it raises the rent on those units that are open to market. So we don't love strict rent control. So we're not in the city of San Francisco. We're in Napa. We're in the city of Fremont, just across the bay from Sunnyvale. We're in the town of Sunnyvale. We have invested in Santa Cruz. You go down the coast and we're in Ventura from Santa Barbara down into LA on the coast. Orange County on the coast and then in San Diego. And then we're also around the Seattle region as well. And that's something we're really excited about as well as the tech presence and the salaries have parity in Seattle to Silicon Valley, which is really attractive to us. So that's a huge sandbox. To some global investors, they say that's very niche. For us, we say it's the Western seaboard. If you said you were going to invest from New York to Florida, you wouldn't say that's a small market. And for us, we're investing In a huge market, and it's a gigantic sandbox, as I said, with 85% of it owned by non institutional folks. There's a lot of opportunity to dislodge deals, either generational transfer or just an opportunity to buy an unloved asset. One other thing that we see that's really exciting is we can also buy from institutions. So our track record with institutions is actually very similar to our high net worth track record, even though there are more fun stories to talk about buying from the family who's asleep at the wheel. But if you look at a big, global private equity firm, you might have 15 people managing thousands of buildings. And so no matter how smart they are, they're not as close to the cooking as we are. And so we can just unlock value just as well from a big institutional group where maybe they've never even visited the asset. We live down the street and we saw it the last time it sold and we know the last owner. We know all the vendors who work there. And so we have a deep file on a lot of these properties we'll look at. We can find gems that have been overlooked in those situations as well.
0: When the ownership is that fragmented, How do you find these properties to buy? So we're a small team. Having steak dinners with the
1: family for ten years is not a great use of our time to unlock deals because you don't know when they'll trade. What we do do though is we keep a very close tab on the brokerage community. We have folks from Eastill Secured, which are the real estate investment banking folks, all the way down to folks with a Gmail account that have a broker license, and those folks are paid as they find deals. Those are the individuals who are having dinners with the family for 10 years and then a generational transfer occurs or a tax bill happens or the family decides they want to move into retail or they want to move out of state or something happens and then they want to meet the market. And at that point, the broker says, gosh, I've had a relationship with this family for eight years, 15 years. I have one call to make to try to make this transaction and finally get paid. And so then they have a choice on who they want to work with. And that's a call we want to get. And so we'll get the call from the broker saying, you know what, they've been very challenging. I know somebody who's a quick yes or a quick no, and we'll get on a plane and come and see this asset and underwrite it accurately and quickly. And so then we want to get that call. Having capital, but being easy to work with, being a quick yes or a quick no, is just super important. Another piece of it is because we don't own assets indefinitely, we'll then sell that asset three, five, six years later and use that broker again when we sell it. And so someone who brings us a deal, they'll make twice as much. If they bring it to somebody else who never sells it, they'll make one commission. When they sell it to us, they'll likely make two. And so we have a history of that as well.
0: When one of these deals finds you, you have a small team, you're hopping on a plane. What does your underwriting process look like?
1: So there's always a danger of falling in love with the real estate. It's quantitative first. So we want to see the model before we ever even look at a photo or anything. We're looking at the model and does this make sense financially? Then we'll start looking at the block by block nature. We only underwrite things in towns that we have interest in investing in. So the town usually has already been underwritten. And so then it's, hey, what part of town do we want to be in? Is this in between the church that most of the community goes to and the school, which is outrageously good? And is this the path that the families take every morning? Or is this in the tartar part of town? And there's a bar that has a really bad reputation that's behind it. And there's always going to be a bad element coming and going from that bar next to the asset. Should we price the rents differently because of that? comes down to a real block-by-block sense of it. You get at the property level, and I mean, it's colorful. Not every institutional teammate loves what they see when they get to the property level. There'll be a single mother of three doing a fantastic job raising her family in unit one. And unit two could have a hoarder in the unit with magazines piled to the ceiling and a small pathway in between next to another family that might have seven cats and seven litter boxes. And it makes your eyes water when you go in. So we do unit by unit inspections. I do as well. Our whole team goes in there, our investment committee. And during COVID, we were wearing hair nuts and face shields and a mask and booties and gloves and requesting residents if we could see the units. And then we would leave the unit and we would take it all off, get all new PPE and then knock on the next door. It's not for the faint of heart, but it's extremely tangible what we're doing. So you're getting in there. And if you're gritty, it's something that's pretty rewarding.
0: What kind of cap rates do you underwrite in these models? The deals we really love are operationally distressed.
1: So if there's a family who's running a deal and their property may be 100% full, but if they're asking half of what market rents are, so the revenue is broken and will take several years to get that back up to where we believe it should be as residents move. It turns out about 50% of residents move every year in America. And so that's a real opportunity in our space is that as somebody gets a significant other, changes job, they move. And then at that point, we can go in, renovate the unit and then bring the unit to where we think the market should be. You could be buying something if the revenue is half of where it should be. The cap rate could be a two and a half cap but we believe that just with normal operations, this property is somewhere between a 4 and a 5% cap rate. That would be our view on the going in. And that's shifting today with interest rates moving up considerably. But a nice thing in our markets is we can look back to 2002, we can look back to 2007, and we can get a real sense of where cap rates peaked out in a given town. And we like these rich markets where the cap rates really never blew out. And so that gives us some sense of safety in that town. So you pay for safety, if that makes sense. Whereas in other markets, cap rates double every time. In 2002 or 2007, if their cap rates doubled, that's usually not a market we're spending a lot of time in.
0: Once you've identified a property that you're interested in, what does the negotiation look like and the competition from there to winning a deal?
1: Everyone is different. Sometimes it's a handwritten letter to the family that maybe tips it in your direction telling them you can help them with their generational transfer or their tax needs. These can be long conversations. And the negotiation with a family can be just as nuanced and challenging as with an institution where you're back channeling into a big institution and trying to help them understand that you're a sure thing and that you do what you say you'll do. These negotiations sometimes can happen in a couple of days. Other times they could be six months long. I think of it as the analogy of spinning plates. You kind of see where folks are spinning 10 plates you're tending to each one and you want to make sure that they're still going, but you don't want to fall in love with any individual situation. And so you just want to keep tabs on a lot of little things. That's a lot of real estate.
0: So once you've purchased one of these, walk me through the game plan for these improvements that you intend to make. First
1: and foremost, we want the confidence of the residents. We want to make sure they feel good about us coming in. Usually they Might've had low rents, but they also had a roof that was leaking and they had a garbage disposal that was never fixed. It was promised. So the first thing we go in is we go in and we ask every single resident, tell us everything that is wrong. And we're going to come in and we're going to fix it in the first couple of weeks. And that's a little different than a lot of our competitors. And they're shocked. We come blowing in and we'll fix everything. The last thing we want is a leaky floorboard or leaky roof. We don't know about it. it become a major problem. So it's also self-serving. So we'll come in and fix all the habitability issues day one. Then we would go in and start demonstrating our value add by replacing the pool deck or maybe putting in a gym or fixing the roof. We're showing the residents we're here not just to push rents, we're here to create a better living environment. Folks are on a one-year lease typically anyway, and so they're just living in their unit, paying their normal rent. Another thing we'll do is we'll come in and we'll put in washer dryers into units while residents are living there, and then they'll just have the washer dryer through the end of their lease, obviously for no cost. And they're pretty excited about that. And then when the end of their lease happens, we tend to self-cap our rent increases. So we'll offer, call it a 5% or a 10% increase on a really low rent, even though the market might be 40% above that. And then folks have that decision. Okay, do I want to keep living here? Is this my community for a long time or not? A lot of times they take that rent increase. Uh, We actually find our turnover is not higher than the national average. It's very similar. It's really not our actions that may have people leaving. It's really just life. Like I said, having a significant other or changing jobs. The reason you live in an apartment is so you can be flexible. So then when that resident departs, we'll go in there and the clock starts. It's game on. We bonus our construction teams on renovating units. And typically it's about 12 to 15 days to completely gut renovate an apartment. This is going from shag carpet and pink tile and an old lampshade to a completely renovated unit in 15 days, call it maybe spending between 15 and $20,000 on that unit, which anybody who's renovated a home or a condo, pretty tough to replace the entire kitchen, all the bathrooms, as well as all the living spaces, all the hardware as well in 15 days for $20,000. But that's where the devil is in the details of the process orientation of what our teams do. And so then on the 16th day, the keys are dropped back in the property manager's hand This unit is ready to show. In a perfect world, they've already pre-leased it. Sometimes that happens, sometimes that doesn't. And then the days start counting in terms of the time until they lease that unit. If the unit stays vacant too long, then we're asking too high a rent. We start dropping that rent. Call it five days later, six days later, that rent will drop down a little bit until we meet the market. And then that unit is released. That constant turn is always happening. We have thousands of units and it's not just in one town. or in 25 towns. With 30 buildings, so a lot of our towns, we only have one building. And so it's this patchwork, this tapestry of vendors and coordination to hit cost, hit timelines with various teams that are, most of them are remote. It's actually pretty complicated when you go into the detail of it.
0: So how do you go about making that renovation happen at that cost and on time?
1: It comes down to just being good to people. So we're very focused on being good to our vendors, paying them on time, doing what we'll say we'll do. Most vendors pay their teams every week, but then they have a net 30 to charge us. It's a really tough industry. They get paid every 30 days if we pay on time, but they have to pay their teams every week. So us being able to deliver them consistent work to keep their teams busy, but also paying all our bills on time and being good to them, not having them bid endlessly on projects they don't get. So we have to earn it. Nobody has to work for us. I believe in that in the firm. I believe in that with our investors. We have to earn it every single day.
0: absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. When you put the numbers together, so first you're talking about renovation of common areas, fixing the problems in the building, then you've got these individual units. How does the math work on... Either a unit basis or a building basis to get to the types of returns that you're targeting? So,
1: when we're renovating, we want to keep ourselves to a high standard of about a 20% return on cost. We want to make sure that we're making returns that are accretive to our aggregate returns for the deal, at least that we originally underwrite, that we're clear of that. We really test ourselves at each feature. A fun example is we'll go in and renovate an entire unit for $20,000 and we'll say, Actually, that stone counter costs $2,000. We could have done a laminate counter for $1,000. On unit 103, let's actually pull back the stone and put in the laminate. And if you can get the exact same rent, we may pull back that feature. And we'll say there's actually no return on cost for that additional feature. Another way to put it is some people, if you build it, they will come. That's part of real estate is if you build a building, you got to deliver the whole building, whether people like it or not. For us, with each unit, with each feature within a unit, we're iterating and constantly looking at that. And that's where we can be very careful not to overspend into a unit, which is a huge risk modulation approach. So when downturns have happened in the past, even when we went into COVID and the same thing in 07, before we really knew what was happening, we knew our return on cost wasn't quite working. Despite what we were trying to figure out in the public markets, we knew we weren't getting the rent. And so the next unit didn't get renovated. We just kept it as a plain unit. You can actually forecast recessions by looking at how aggressively we're renovating our units because the data comes in from the property level versus us seeing it in the macro environment.
0: Once you've gone through a building over a couple of years with this turnover, you've got it mostly renovated. You mentioned you then look to sell. A lot of people, and particularly in families, think of real estates as just the yielding property. I'd love to hear, how did you come to this time horizon that's a little bit shorter than what someone might expect from a real estate investment fund?
1: Partially informed by insecurity. You think of these young kids trying to build a track record that we could show people and do well for them. And really, it's all talk until we deliver cash back to somebody's hand. The mark doesn't mean much, especially in today's environment. What's a mark? It's all changing very fast. What matters is your returns. And so for us in the early days, it was all about, hey, we proved the thesis sell the deal, show the folks the return on cost or the ROI and the IRR. And so it was all about building the track record that way. What was exciting as we got to know the institutional community was that most of our friends are not taxable. So foundations, endowments, they're not paying tax. And so while we do have debates about how short to hold the deal, and obviously we want an ROI that's high enough, we don't want a one-three and a 50% IRR. That doesn't get the job done. We need ROIs that are much better than that. The idea of selling a building is a less painful to an endowment or foundation because they're not paying tax when we send it back to them because basically charitable things they're doing with it in the world. But we debate it. I think as well, we take on risk by buying old buildings, by doing renovations, by handling the residents and just doing all the things we're doing. I think real estate in general underestimates how much more risk you add on by taking on an additional seven years of holding a building. Your market risk and just the risk of just something happening at the property, just strange things happen a random slip and fall lawsuit, or a truck driving by drives into the front of the building, God forbid, or things happen. And so you amplify risk by holding deals without a concrete plan of why you're holding it. So this idea of just holding for multiple,
0: I think is overly simplistic. When you bring this all together, walk me through an example of one of your investments, including all the colorful stories that go along with it.
1: We have a lot of those. So there's a property in Encinitas, which is a fancy market in North San Diego, a great beach town. In the bottom of COVID, we got a call from a broker we've known for 15 years. We started in the industry together. These are dear friends. And so he had been making calls on this 200 unit building with a condo map. So a nice quality building for a very long time. He called us and said, well, I have this opportunity. The ownership was a potato peeling factory factory out of the Midwest. And this is the retirement plan for the line workers at the manufacturing company. They own one or two pieces of real estate, but a really large potato peeling business. They knew nothing really much about the real estate operations and they're not in the state. Their rents were 40 to 50% lower than what we thought we could do with them. Granted, a fantastic investment by the individual they owned it since it was built, made multiples and multiples on their money. So We wish our returns looked like their returns, but operationally there was opportunity. And so we got in there, ended up winning the deal actually by a handwritten letter to the individuals and basically telling them we'd take great care of the retirement plan for them to make sure they got the capital that we delivered on the price, which we did. There's color at the property. The head of maintenance had raised his children at the property. Everyone is great friends there at the property, but there were also things that had not been dealt with, whether that was life safety or... There were residents that didn't like each other and that needed to be handled. There were common areas and amenities for the residents that were locked off and only used by the staff at the property. So just low-hanging fruit. There's colorful situations. We had one other where we actually had to interview with the district attorney for the town to buy this property because the property had been so mismanaged by a private individual. They had basically thumbed their nose to the district attorney and said, well, we can raise the rents as much as we want not taking care of the residents. And so the district attorney wanted to talk to us directly about our plan when we went in with the building. And they've been really excited to see what we did with it, that we cleaned things up, that we took care of everybody. There's all these colorful situations. One other example I'll go to is on the institutional front. So we had a 400-unit building we acquired from a large fund that folks would know, and we discovered that 45 of the garages had been locked for the entire ownership, locked off from rental. And just nobody had thought to ask, we should unlock these garages and start running them to the residents in an underparked property. And that was worth about $5 million And when you capitalize the income of that property. We opened those garages and there's cobwebs and all of them, and they clearly hadn't been used in years and no clear answer on why that was the case. That kind of low-hanging fruit is pretty exciting for us to see. And you can understand how that could happen if you're sitting in New York and you're tasked with overseeing 150 assets in various states around the country. There's things that are missed. Those are a few examples where every deal has something.
0: When you look at your business, you went into the saying, hey, mom and dad own 10 properties. Maybe we can turn this into a private equity fund. One of the questions you always run into is scale. You're finding low hanging fruit in operationally intensive situations. How have you thought about the scale of what you can do?
1: It's important for us. The business works with having funds that buy 15 to 17 assets. Our last three funds have all had about 15 to 17 assets. And that works for us in terms of acquiring deals opportunistically. And so while the fund size has grown somewhat, we raise funds that ideally we can raise in a matter of months, close them, and then just put our heads down and get back to work. We don't let the size of the fund guide us. We let the opportunity set guide us. And we actually think it's better from a J-curve perspective as well. Really 25 years ago the business was acquiring 20 to 400 unit buildings. Today we're buying 20 to 400 unit buildings. It just takes a little bit more capital to do that. We've been very close to not straying both on geography, vintage and size of asset. I think our first fund, the average building was 98 units and our most recent fund, our average building was 107. In terms of the bricks and the sticks, we've stuck to our knitting because we really appreciate the outcomes that comes from that area. We didn't invent the space. There's a lot of folks who have been in this space, but now they build skyscrapers in Manhattan or Honolulu, which is fantastic. And they do great things doing that. But we are the only group that has remained in this space. And so having our fund actually does differentiate us there, which has been nice the way that's worked out.
0: Have you thought about adjacencies so you can stick to your knitting, but maybe there's another group you can teach to do this in a different set of geographies? Just kind of curious the internal discussions you have about scaling laterally.
1: It's interesting. We don't want to be complacent, but we also think there's just a lot to do where we are. I think you look at Essex, large public REIT, they are in our geographies doing what we're doing and they're 20 times our size. So there's plenty of opportunity to do more significant work within our sandbox. We've had some investors ask us, can you pick up five more states and go do this in those five states? That's for the experts in those states. We're here doing this. We have thought about owning longer in our geographies because a lot of the brokerage relationships and the, region and the location understanding we have could lend itself to acquiring newer product. And I think that could be interesting or owning things for a much longer duration on the side. But now we're really laser focused on working with the folks who put us in business. We have a core group of about 10 investors that have been in all of our funds. If we do well for them, it's profitable for us. We're hungry to make that a good bet for them.
0: You mentioned at the onset that you stepped into this knowing very little about real estate. There's an aspect of real estate you hear a lot about, about how intensive it is in managing people. You're working with outside contractors. You're working with all the people in the building and your tenants. What have you learned about managing people and teams from this experience?
1: People do not have to work for you. There's folks who get CPI increases and get promoted occasionally within the team, which is fantastic. And we celebrate those moments, but it's very different than traditional private equity roles. We have 110 people that are working with us right now, and they work with us because we take care of them. They have transparency into the management, the culture, hopefully their path up. That was something I had to learn coming out of traditional private equity. Culture was less of the focus or definitely in investment banking. I had to learn that we needed to create a place that people are excited to work. And it's not the money. And it's usually not the money in private equity either. It's about the mission and feeling really passionate about it. One thing that we've really shared with our teams top to bottom is just the mission of our investors. It's something that really motivates everybody when they realize that the difference between sending cash back to a wealthy family, which is fine. There's a difference between that and funding scholarships for kids who are first of their family to go to school. That's really powerful. And so we talk about those on our Friday meeting. We talk about clean water projects in Africa that are being funded in a very small way, but from us to our foundation investors. So that's something I think our property teams actually get really fired up about. And I think a lot of people just in private equity in general don't talk enough about the ultimate recipient of why we're doing this. What are some of the other leadership lessons you've learned along the way? In real estate, there's a lot of hubris. And so we see a lot of people that get over their skis in terms of taking themselves too seriously. There's a lot of people using the word I too much. we got 110 people and most of my job is just taking care of them and keeping them empowered. The idea of have a broad team, have a team that's empowered. We have five people on our investment committee. We have press releases that don't include my name and they shouldn't because there's other people that made that outcome happen. I really think there's benefits in terms of returns to having a team that's empowered and not having it be this one person show. We can all name a lot of private equity firms where there's really just one name that's talked about. And I think that's a real fault. A nice thing with Julia and I co-leading this business is one of us gets over our skis, we'll trim each other back pretty quick, as would our other investment committee members. And so that's a good thing too. How
0: have you found working with a sibling? It's been great. I know it's not for everybody and we get the question a lot. I
1: try to distinguish between partner issues and sibling issues. If I was gonna start a private equity firm, I would have partners and there would be things we would disagree on and there'd be things we push each other on. And those are not sibling things. Those are partner things and they're really healthy and that's part of building a business. And then occasionally there are sibling things. Being 100% aligned in terms of we have equal economics, we're not in most meetings together because she speaks for me and I speak for her and that's fantastic. It's actually been very clean one thing that's beneficial is we have different things that excite us. With her consulting background, my private equity background, we just have different things that fire us up. And we both understand that. So it's like, hey, this thing came up, you do that, I'll do this. I also think the co-CEOing is something that's very interesting. And I'm seeing it more often with some of our investors and and even other firms. There's a lot of benefits to it. And I realize you can do it wrong. But CEOing sometimes is very lonely. And it does take you away from... Being a practitioner in your vertical. And so for us, we'll divide up the CEO duty, and that allows me to go into the investment side and spend real time. And that allows her to go into the asset management side and spend real time. I really appreciate that there's office space to move or the holiday party or think about insurance or whatever it is. You know, one of us will tackle that issue, and then the next one, the other one will tackle. And then the rest of their day is spent hopefully adding value for the investors and doing the thing that got us to the seat.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about risks. And the first obvious place to think about is the macroeconomic environment and what we're seeing with rates and the potential for a recession. How do you think through risk in the strategy? We want to have as few variables as possible.
1: We talked about new supply. We like markets where you can't build anything, even though it's frustrating as a resident of some of these towns. Things like earthquake risk, that's a risk. And so we have earthquake policy on the entire portfolio, which most groups don't. And we just say, let's just solve for that. Obviously, nothing's ever solved. Look, the interest rate environment, you'd be remiss not to mention the interest rates have effectively doubled for our product. The good news for apartments is we can still get loans. We can get really nice loans still. But if you're in retail or office, there's just no loan. You've got to do all your deals, all equity, which is pretty wild. The effects on us have been much less than others, but the doubling of the cost of the capital is no small thing. There's a resetting of pricing going on right now, which is very interesting. And so we're paying attention to that. I think there's physical plant risk for certain, especially late in the cycle. So we've been very cautious of this over the last few years. If there's an environmental risk or there's a fire risk or there's a foundational issue at the property, real infrastructure or site issues, we really steer clear of that because when you're doing meat and potatoes investing, there's no way to smooth that over. There's no 10X deal in our world. If you're doing singles and doubles, you don't have time for a foundation that's cracked. So being very methodical on those risk front, we just have no appetite for that. If there's a mold claim at a property, we'll just move on to the next property. And that's the nice thing about it being a big universe of properties to look at.
0: To what extent do you see inflation hitting your tenants?
1: It's been pretty exciting to see the wages of our residents catapult up over the last few years. So the rent to income ratio for our residents is about 17 so percent. About 17 percent of their income goes to rent. And that's really healthy. We get really worried when that touches 30 to 50% and then suddenly they have to not have a car or really trim into something that hurts in their life. What we found is even folks who work at restaurants in Napa are making a lot more money than they used to because the hotel's making more on their per night. And then they're going to pay folks whatever they need to, to staff the restaurant and the folks working at that restaurant live at our building. And so what we find is their incomes are moving up very nicely. The same in the tech community. That's been something that gives us confidence. And I think if you're in Boise, I don't think the wages are moving up at the same level that they do on the coast. And I think that's something that will pay dividends in the coming years in terms of resiliency of our residents.
0: So as you look out, say a three, five-year cycle from here, what do you think IEC looks like?
1: I think dominating and showing excellence in this middle market space is where we want to be. There's a lot to do here. I think we're just scratching the surface, but I think staying in our lane is very important to us. I think it's self-serving. I think it's good for our team. I think it's good for our investors. Just continuing to be very focused on this coastal market of what we do, maybe finding other products in those neighborhoods, other versions of multifamily. We're the meat and potatoes group. We think that's interesting. I think continuing to grow our teams internally and find ways to keep them motivated, promote internally, have a track for folks is super important. And then growing our investment committee that are all promote holders and They run various pieces of their business continuing to give them ways to elevate. That's a real responsibility for us. So we don't end up in the position that some folks that are 20 years older than we are dealing with on a transition standpoint, even though we're young and we don't have to worry about it that much. We want to be planning forward for the business so that it endures. And we're seeing a lot of folks where they forgot about that for a while and now they're tending to it. And so thinking about that is really important too.
0: Great. Marshall, I don't want to let you go without asking you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? For me,
1: it's pre-sunrise athletics with friends. So my headlamp gets a lot of use. I was out there this morning running through the frost in the dark. And so for me, between work and travel and family, it's very easy to not have time for some physical activity and the social piece. To have friends where they don't really know what I even do for a living and I don't know what they do, but they're just folks that I have a good time with and then push ourselves, whether it's running up a mountain or swimming in the bay. Almost always in the dark, which is a funny way to have your social life.
0: So what is the extent of how far you're taking these activities? I've done Ultramans. I've
1: done Ironman. If somebody wants to train up to do a five-hour swim, I'll do that too. So really pushing yourself, I think it gives you a sense of grit and a sense of purpose and having these little projects you're always ticking away at. Every morning with that headlamp, there's something I'm working towards, which is really fun.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve? I think
1: one is just folks saying they don't have time. I think everybody has time. I think we have a lot of time. I think when your average American is watching four hours of television, there's a lot of time to work with. And so this idea that I don't have time either for work or social or athletics, go to bed earlier, get up earlier, cut out some of the things you do on the side. I think we all have time.
0: How about on the investment side? What's your biggest investment pet peeve? People talk about fund creep or the J
1: curve. I think what they ought to look at is when people use the word I an association with an investment or an outcome. We're a small company, but with our 100 associates, there's a lot of people getting things done. So the use of the word I when speaking about something that the firm has accomplished, and even the hubris of saying, sometimes things are given to you by the market. Sometimes you earned them in spite of the market, or sometimes both happen. This idea of taking credit is something that's overdone.
0: Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I think my father, just his academic approach I got to hand that to him. Being a
1: professor is very strange to have a professor of economics be running a real estate firm. This idea that there's somebody always smarter in the room, I think, is something that I definitely appreciate. And then Frank Quattrone, it was a long time ago I worked for him, but I learned a lot watching him operate and then continuing to track his career. And then ultimately, I got laid off by him in late 2003, I think that was. And that really gave me a sense of. Like I said, I don't deserve anything. I got to go out and create value. Got to create opportunity. The cycle can move on you. Things that you think are not movable are movable. turns out in life, that was a gift. To get that gift at the age of 23 or whatever you are at that age, that was something that I'd definitely thank him for.
0: What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame?
1: These unloved family-owned deals we can combine that with a location that we have a special view on, that's something that we're jumping on our Southwest flight the next morning. We do a lot of 6 a.m. flights and that's one that gets me on a flight every single time. Because a lot of times you have the unloved family deal that has a nice story, but we don't know anything about the town or we dislike the town. We don't like the location. That disqualifies a deal. So if you can have that intersection of a little bit of good fortune on a deal coming around and something you've already studied extensively that's not to blame for me.
0: How about your biggest blind spots? My father liked to talk a lot.
1: He was a big character. And maybe as a child of his, I would roll my eyes a bit. And so I think sometimes I get very quiet in a corporate setting. I'll just get very quiet. And so sometimes I'll believe I was participating a lot within our team. But then if I ask them, gosh, you barely said anything. <laughs> Honestly, I get too quiet. And so I should. I need to find ways to get involved, if that makes sense. I try to offset that by doing coffees and taking our team out to lunch where I'm forced to interact. But in the office, I'm very heads down. What teaching from your
0: parents has most stayed with you?
1: A lot of people believe you shouldn't invest for your family and friends. My parents always said, if you're honest in business and you're doing great work, then you can work with your family and friends and it will be joyful. This idea of being that good folks win. It's not every moment. It's not every deal for certain, but in the end, things come around. And if you just keep your true north, I think investors, team, residents will understand that you have a true north. And so That's something that's been very gratifying. And there were moments in my career where maybe that wasn't the case. I'm reconvicted that that is the case.
0: Great. Marshall, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: You got to take a moment to burn the lifeboats. There's a moment where I think a lot of people are hedging in their careers. I think a lot of people are constantly looking at switching. And so just saying there's going to be a moment where I'm going to put my head down for three years, five years, eight years, whatever it is, and really invest in this thing. And whether it works out or not, I'll believe that being excellent at it will pay dividends in the next thing, or maybe this thing. But that idea of just putting your head down and you don't need to constantly be hedging or have a fallback because the switching or the reevaluation constantly is very distracting from excellence in the moment.
0: Marshall, thanks so much for sharing this pretty cool niche opportunity you've been pursuing. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.